Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 23rd, 2018, and my guest is sociologist Beth Redbird of Northwestern University. Her research focuses on the role of boundaries and restrictions, how they affect relationships and economic outcomes. We're going to focus today on her work on licensing and its effect on quality and wages. Beth, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. You recently published a paper in the American Sociological Review on licensing uh, with some with some striking findings. The, the first paragraph is a really nice introduction to a little bit of the history. It says, over the past few decades, occupational closure and particularly licensure quietly became the norm for a broad swath of U.S. occupations, where only a small set of traditional professions once determined entry through regulation. Today, the practice governs a much wider range of occupations, from doctors to engineers, carpet layers to massage therapists, agricultural inspectors to wilderness guides and fortune tellers to legal document assistants. The most substantial growth has been in blue-collar occupations, and particularly the production and transportation sector, which more than doubled its licensed workforce over the past 30 years. As of 2012, Over 32% of workers were required to hold a license to work in their chosen occupation. And shortly after that, you point out, quote, more workers are subject to licensing requirements now than were members of unions at the peak of collective bargaining, close quote. So that was rather striking, rather remarkable. Um, Do we is there a particular time where this trend started taking off? Uh, yeah, so licensing is one of, I think, the biggest changes you can see in the labor market over the last 30 years. Uh, more workers hold a license than have a college degree. More workers hold a license than work at the minimum wage. And the trend really starts uh, pre the 1970s, but takes off during the 70s and 80s. Um, And it's not sort of consistent across the occupational structure. So we see a big takeoff in service occupations becoming licensed in the 80s and 90s. And then that flows into uh, construction and production-based occupations in the 90s and 2000s. Now, one of the challenges of measuring this kind of phenomenon, and I didn't see it offhand in the paper, and I do not see it in other works I've read, is that some of that increase in licensing is clearly new regulations, new legislation that explicitly lays out how to be licensed in an occupation that was unlicensed before. But the other source of growth potentially is that there's just been a growth in occupations that happen to be licensed. And those have, for whatever reason, become more prevalent in the, in the, uh, in the, in the service sector. Do we have any feeling for those differences? Yeah, I'm afraid I'm not understanding your distinction between a license require and something that happens. To well, let's say let's say um, I think all doctors are required to be licensed in the United States. Am I? Yes. I think that's correct. That's correct. Uh, I'm one of the few people who could imagine that it might be a good thing not to do that, but put that to the side. Uh, all right. But all doctors are licensed. So if no legislation changed in the United States over the last 30 years, but 
uh, doctors became uh, more common through various uh, changes in public policy, demand for doctors by private individuals, then licensing, the number of people licensed, people working with a license would go up, but that wouldn't be an expansion of of the requirement of licensing. It just would have been a, I would call it within profession expansion. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are a bunch of occupations, as you mentioned, I assume a wilderness guide and massage therapist and carpet layers. Those are occupations that didn't require a license 30 years ago, perhaps, and now do. And some of those will become more prevalent because of demand and others might have become less prevalent because of demand or because it got harder to become a person in that field, all kinds of complicated reasons. Mm-hmm. If we look at expansion caused by both factors, we see an increase of licensing since 1983 of about 200 percent. Since 1970, about 2,000 new licensing laws have been enacted. So the answer to your question is uh, both phenomena occur, uh, but the addition of new occupations subject to licensing is not a small contributor to that trend. I mean, 2,000 new licensing laws in 40 years across 50 states is a lot of new laws. And the traditional argument for licensing is to protect consumers from uh, poor quality provision services by untrained or uh, uh, dangerous uh, providers of the service or just frauds. Um, And that's one perspective. The other perspective is that it's a way for uh, existing members of an occupation to keep out competitors. is, And that's the standard argument that goes takes place in economics. Is that the standard argument in sociology also? Yes, it is. We call it rent capture, but yeah, we it would definitely too. predominates <laughs> us. Yes. And it's a classic example for longtime listeners of, of bootleggers and Baptists, uh, the regulatory theory that says – there are attractive arguments for regulation and then some self-interested arguments, and people will often cloak self-interested arguments in, uh, in more uh, morally pleasing tones. So if, even if your only goal is to protect workers' uh, wages from competition, you're going to usually say you're doing it to protect consumers. But, of course, it's an empirical question as to whether those effects are large, important, et cetera. And uh, as we'll find out from your work, there, there's it's more complicated even that, which I which I think is what makes it so interesting. Um, so, how what's your background in this area? How'd you get interested in it, and then uh, tell us about the data set you use to to examine this and why past efforts have been problematic for trying to figure out what the impact of licensing is. Well, like most sociologists, I'm very interested in inequality. And so I got started in this because I wanted to know, you can see from my introduction, licensing is not a small phenomenon. It's huge. And yet we don't understand the impact that it's had on the inequality within the American labor force. Now, we've studied, of course, the impact of deunionization, the rise in the college premium. uh, But here is a trend that is on par with that that we knew almost nothing about. And so I wanted to study licensing and its impact on both between occupation inequality and within occupation inequality. And then, of course, I got sidetracked uh, when I discovered kind of this interesting interaction between licensing and supply of labor. Well, my, one of my favorite words in that introduction is the word quietly uh, that I quoted of your, from your paper. It is quiet. Most people – I mean I'm, I've just gotten interested in the last year or two. We had a recent episode with uh, Dick Carpenter um, – 
in his about his book Bottleneckers. It's very anti-licensing, and one of the reasons I want to have you on is that you're more agnostic, at least um, about the question of what the impact of licensing is. But traditionally, economists have been hostile to it. Um, for, for sociologists as well, for a variety of reasons, I think in economics, and I assume also in sociology. So why have past efforts? So a lot of people have found a wide range of effects from licensing, but mostly that they have increased wages in the occupations through reducing supply. What's wrong with those estimates, or what at least methodologically? Why did you? What are, what do people worry about in in relying on those? Um. So. Licensing and the study of wages and licensing has suffered from this huge data problem in that licensing is frequently done at the state level, and there's just no good repository on all state laws that exist in the United States. Um, And so uh, we've kind of been forced into two types of analysis in the past. The first is where we pick one occupation, say dentists, which we study a lot in licensing research, and we'll look at dentists in all 50 states. And we'll try to determine whether or not, for example, a higher failure rate when dentists take admissions tests or uh, more stringent background checks for dentists somehow translates into different wages uh, within the dental occupational arrangement between states. Uh, The second way we tend to study licensing is Uh, We'll pick an occupation that we think of as traditionally licensed, like, say, psychologists, and we'll compare them to an occupation we think of as typically not licensed, like biologists. And we'll say if psychologists make more money than biologists, there's evidence that licensing raises wages. Now, I think it's easy to see the the kind of flaw in that argument is uh, dentists aren't like anybody else. Dentists, in fact, have a different... Uh, reward structure than any other even medical profession. Uh, And biologists and psychologists are not the same profession either. In fact, uh, I can think of one really obvious difference. I have not yet said, I think I'll go see my biologist today. Yes. Uh, There's there's a really obvious customer component to psychologists that don't exist for biologists. And so uh, without kind of a good handle on who we can compare licensed and unlicensed to, it becomes really difficult to make a conclusion about what uh, licensing does to wages. And so my research looks at uh, all 2,000 licensing occupations passed since 1970 uh, across all uh, 341 census-defined occupations in all 50 states. I have nearly 11 million workers in my data set. And what that allows me to do is not just compare dentist to dentist, but compare across all occupations. And we can get even more complicated than that. So we can compare, for instance, the wages of a female Asian uh, paralegal in her early 20s who's licensed to a female Asian paralegal in her early 20s who's unlicensed. And there are more than 250 of those exact people in this data. So it allows for really comparable comparisons. The second thing it allows us to do is to look over time and to say what happens in an occupation when a licensing law passes. So what happened to California paralegals on the day their license law passed and in the 20 years since? And so it allows us this really nice comparison where we're no longer using occupations that don't quite match as proxies for 
a licensed comparison, and instead we can make a direct comparison of wages. So that seems a lot better. You still have the problem, of course, of the 20-year – the Asian paralegal in her 20s in one state is in a different labor market than in the other state, and you want to try to control for that. Yes. They have different other characteristics beside being in her 20s and whatever else you know about her. But before we go into that, um, where did these data come from? Where, where, where did you get them? Um, well, the data on wages comes from the current population survey, which is a large government survey of uh, uh, 300,000 workers every year, I think. Uh, and then the licensing data came from when I was at Stanford. We had a group of law students reading codes for years and making a note of every licensed code that exists. Now, licensing is really interesting in that there's no place that's kind of uniformly for licensing laws. Licensing of teachers occurs in the education code. Licensing of uh Florists and massage therapists occurs in the occupations code, right? So licensing laws are kind of dispersed throughout uh, states' regulatory books. And so we we basically went on a hunt where we attempted to read and find every law that we could find related to licensing. One of the things that is challenging about this field in general, and I think challenging to think about as, as an economist or a sociologist, is that the rigors of the license are not the same in every occupation. So there's a big difference. You could probably tell me a, a relatively lightly licensed uh, profession versus going to medical school at an accredited um, uh, medical school and or going to a law school and, and passing the bar, right? Passing the bar, you have to pass the bar to get a license, I assume, in every state. Is that true? Mm -hmm. In every state? Uh you have to pass the bar in every state. You don't require going to law school in California. Well, California makes it exception. interesting. So, but and I and while there are many, I assume occupations that have a a test. Not every I assume not every occupation has a test to get a license, and some have more hoops to jump through, and some have fewer. And in some cases, the hoops are very relevant. In other cases, I assume the hoops are somewhat less relevant. Um, is that correct? That presumption. That is correct. And in fact, one of the things that happens to me a lot is I talk to other scientists and they say to me, well, the one thing we know licensing has to do is be exclusionary, which is a really broad statement given the huge diversity that you see in licensing regulation. Uh, you're completely correct that going to become a lawyer or a doctor requires uh, not just passing a test that has a failure rate of approximately a third in some states and going to school for years and paying possibly tens of thousands of dollars to go to school. Uh, but you can compare that occupation to, say, high school coaches, which are licensed in an awful lot of states. But a high school coach license basically says you go to a class on a Saturday for a couple of hours about identifying concussions and treating concussions when they happen and administering CPR. Both of those are a form of licensing, but the exclusionary possibilities for one are completely different than the likelihood of exclusion in the other. Correct. And, and you know, the economist in me says uh, when you make something more expensive, you get fewer people interested in doing it. Uh, if you make it just a little more expensive, the, the decrease might be quite small, might not even be observable. Uh, and, of course, it's even possible that there's enough value in that 
say, concussion class, that every single person who was going to be a coach would be thrilled to have that class, in which case – and to pay for it or, or just at least to spend the time at it, in which case the effects are presumably small, whereas uh, becoming a public school teacher, to be certified as a public school teacher – and of course there are some exceptions for certain uh, fields, but in general, that's – it's quite – Onerous, and it's not obvious that, say, getting an education degree is a um, makes one a better teacher. So it's quite a complicated uh, mosaic of um, of regulation. It is indeed. So, so what did you find? Well, in, in your analysis. Yeah. So the first thing I found, which of course floored me, was that there's no wage benefit to being licensed. Licensed paralegals don't earn more money than unlicensed paralegals. On the average of all 341 occupations, licensing doesn't produce increased wages. Now, that's in, that's disguising important variation, of course. What we find is that some occupations do experience a wage benefit and some occupations experience a wage penalty. Give me a an example of an occupation that um, – I mean you could argue that for the very reasons that we were just talking about, the complexity and variation and, and rigor and, and nature of the, of the process, that it's – in a way, it's not so meaningful to talk about the overall effect. So – but for a particular profession where some of the standards might be similar across states, is there variation? We should, I guess I should ask about that first. Even in states that that license uh, some occupations, they license them differently, I assume. Yes, I, but the regulatory schemes aren't quite what you would expect. For instance, you don't find uh, easy minimalist license in Texas and Florida and complicated convoluted licenses in California. It's not that straightforward a pattern. Interesting. Uh, yeah, as opposed to, say, the ability to drink in your car. Um, which in some states you're allowed to have an open bottle, in other states you're not. And they kind of follow up. My guess is they fi- might follow a pattern you'd predict, but maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. I was uh, actually kind of surprised by how many states I would have thought would be sort of on the back end of this trend and de- and not regulating occupations have been some of the biggest uh, growth states in terms of licensing occupations. So for example, Arizona in the last 40 years has experienced this huge boom in occupational licensing. Right. Not, not what you would predict given the no. the presumption of a more libertarian uh, state, uh, which at least Arizona seems to be in some dimension, whatever that means. Um, so what are some of the occupations where what, do you, do you have some that you can tell us that are the large had the largest positive versus the largest negative impact? Yeah, so it appears as though uh, what tends to drive the wage effects is uh, all about after the license is enacted, who still gets in the occupation. Um, and what to backtrack a little bit, what my research finds is that after licensing is enacted, the number of people entering the occupation actually increases. The supply of labor to that occupation goes up. And I spend the rest of the paper attempting to explain, of course, this uh, rather contradictory finding that we would not have expected. Um, But in general, in occupations where the license does keep people from entering, uh, we see a wage benefit. And in occupations that 
uh, the license draws people into the occupation, we see a wage decline. Say that again. Um, some occupations, what the license does is it does exactly what we always thought it was, which we keep people out. And in those occupations, wages function exactly like we would expect them to, and there's a wage benefit to being licensed. Other occupations, though, what the license actually does is it draws people in, particularly women and people of color. And when the license does that, we actually see the license decreases wages. So, you know, just to be technical as an economist here, you can't really see that the supply of labor is increasing. What you see is there are more people in it. You can't distinguish that uh, from an increase in supply versus an increase in demand. Both would increase the number of people. So to give the licensing argument its best case – Again, I'm not sure I agree with this, but to make the best case you could for it, you could argue that that licensing uh, keeps out um, uh, frauds, people who are bad at what they do, and it increases overall quality, and that increases the demand for the service. And whether that in turn leads to higher wages, um, that should lead to higher wages because even if uh, it, it just there's going to be uh, there's going to be a, an increase in demand that's going to push up wages, and, and plus you've increased the quality of the average practitioner, so you'd get a compositional effect there as well. So it wouldn't be surprising that in that case that wages would increase. Uh, similarly, um, it's possible, and you're going to tell us why because it's not obvious. It wasn't until obvious until I read your paper. Standard occupational licensing story from an economist on the other side would be, well, it decreases the supply. That drives up wages. But what you're saying is it actually not just moves along the supply curve through an increase in demand through people being more confident of the quality of the product, that it actually could push out the supply curve and move us down the demand curve where, again, if we stick with the supply and demand framework, where where prices are either similar or lower, but there's more activity. There are more people in the profession. There's more transactions in that activity. So what's the argument for access, which is, I think, the most novel point you make? Well, I think it's been the greatest flaw in our thinking for 200 years now that in an unregulated environment, access to an occupation is open and that there are no barriers to entering an occupation when the occupation isn't regulated. In reality, there are a huge number of what I call informal barriers to entering a job. Uh, Those range from uh, educational requirements all the way to blatant discrimination. And what you see when a license passes is a whole bunch of things occur in that occupation. First and foremost, a whole bunch of secondary institutions pop up. So when a license is passed, frequently a licensing board is created, though not always, sometimes a state Uh, just hands the regulation of a license over to an existing licensing board. Um, A licensing board is created. Uh, The licensing board comes up with a set of standards that you have to pass in order to to enter that occupation. And those standards are consistent across applicants. They're publicized. Um, And then also you see things like schools develop, Uh, So when cosmetologists become licensed, you see the development of cosmetology schools. And cosmetology schools offer things to workers the same way colleges offer things to workers. They offer alumni networks. They offer uh, networking. They offer skill development. They offer uh, assistance with testing. Um, And these 
effects all have the have the outcome of drawing people into the occupation. So let me give you an example of uh, an unlicensed paralegal. Let's take the state of Illinois where I am, uh, an unlicensed paralegal who wants to get a job for the first time as a paralegal. Uh, she doesn't. She's never been a paralegal. She has no indicia of quality. Perhaps she did something crazy like majoring in sociology. Um, and she decides she wants to be a paralegal. How does she get that job? She might go on some website somewhere and see a posting for a paralegal job. She submits her application and then she sits down in an interview, probably across from an attorney, and attempts to convince that attorney uh, that she'd make a good paralegal without any indicia of quality, right? The best he's got is maybe her sociology grades or uh, maybe he knows her. And one of the biggest, there's been qualitative studies of this, one of the biggest entry factors for paralegals is knowing an attorney, uh, the networks that already exist prior to getting the job. So that's how you become a paralegal in an unlicensed state. In a licensed state, if you want to be a paralegal, you go and you type in becoming a paralegal in the state of California and you get a website. And on that website, it lists all the things that you have to do. And the first thing you have to do is go to paralegal school. So you go to paralegal school and it costs money. And obviously not everybody has the skills to do it. But while you're in paralegal school, uh, you network, you meet lawyers, you meet other graduates, you have an alumni support network, you go to job and career fairs, and then you graduate and the paralegal school trains you to take the paralegal test. You take the paralegal test, which obviously not everybody passes. In fact, in California, I think it's a two-day test or something really significant. Uh, and after you pass that test, you take a certificate uh, that says, I am qualified to be a paralegal. I have the skills to be a good paralegal, says the state of California. And you can take that certificate and put it down in front of a lawyer and say, look, I know how to be a paralegal. And this reputable organization of people who are experts in paralegals say I am qualified to be a paralegal. And it takes some of the guesswork out of hiring that paralegal. And it also takes out all these informal barriers that that paralegal had to overcome in order to get that job. That's really interesting. Um, and of course, Sociologists are much more likely to study those informal networks. One of the complaints I have about economists is that we don't tend to look at those kind of issues. We just look at the we just look at the data. <laughs> don't don't tell me about um, you got to know somebody's uncle, and we just look how many people got the job or what their wage was. And you know, when I think of um, some of the incredible networks, uh, just to, example that came to my mind is. Um, if you want to open a grocery in Manhattan, a small grocery, uh, most of those groceries are, I think, run by people from one ethnic group, or, or a lot of them are at any rate. And it's obvious what happens. Somebody from far away calls their uncle or cousin or nephew or whatever and says, I'm looking for work. Uh, you know, Maybe I could start a grocery. Could you help me? And they say, sure, we run one, or I know of a friend who runs one, and they show them the ropes, and they – and plus, it just helps you to realize there's such a job out there called running a grocery that that you might not have thought of, uh, that you wouldn't know where to start. As you point out, if you said to me, you know, how would you get started opening a, a small grocery in Manhattan? I'd say, I have no clue. And it would be hard for me to start. Um, and so I, I have no doubt that personal connections that people have play an important role in the labor market. Uh, I see that with my kids. Uh, it's an important uh, it's really important. I think economists grossly underestimate and ignore 
better way to say it. They don't underestimate. They just don't pay any attention to it. Uh, just sort of say, you know, there's a supply of labor uh, to a particular profession without thinking about where it comes from and how it might be mitigated by cultural connections. I think that's incredibly important. One of the problems I have with the story, though, is that do you think that the in the unlicensed world, the lawyer sitting across from this young person interested in being a paralegal and tries to figure out what the skills that that person has and how well they'll match into the job. Now they're certified. A lot of times there's a big gap between what gets certified and what's actually useful in the job. Uh, this comes back to a recent episode we had with Brian Kaplan about whether education is a signal or whether it's actually something of value. In the case of licensing, where it's a state requirement, in the, the cases we're talking about, it's hard to know. I'd be skeptical that the school would be teaching really the skills that that attorney would like to see, and therefore it's not obvious that they've improved their likelihood of getting the job. Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. We know that employers use signals all the time, and those signals are not always a good indicia of anything. In fact, I believe economists like the term statistical discrimination, which is using uh, demographic characteristics as a signal for an average competence or knowledge or something. So we know employers need heuristics to know who to hire. But, I mean, the license, even if you assume that under no circumstances does paralegal school teach you any skills related to being a paralegal, uh, the sociology department didn't do that either. Right. And so under both circumstances, the person has no skills to be a paralegal. But what they did demonstrate when they went to paralegal school is that they have an interest in being a paralegal. They have staying power to be a paralegal. That's for sure. No. So there are other signals, you know, the the credentialing sheepskin argument. There are other signals that come to education aside from just knowledge. Now, one of the things we don't know at all is how licensing relates to quality. Um, that's a huge, giant uphill battle that we as social scientists have just begun to climb. Yeah, it's crucial too. I mean, I don't. The example that came up in the in the Carpenter episode is it's just not obvious to me that uh, there's any increase in quality in being a dental hygienist uh, by going to any training that that, that they're given that. The, amount, the size of it seems way out of line with what the, the skill set that's required. There's two aspects to this. There's there's quality and then there's knowledge, right? And yep. I don't think you can argue that a dental hygienist leaves dental hygienist school with no knowledge of the dental profession. They learn how to do casts. They learn how to mix the chemicals that go into those acrylic molding things. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, there, that's time that the employer then doesn't have to invest in training of workers, um, that but doesn't I'd like to go. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to go to the hygienist on the corner who doesn't work for a dentist and has lower overhead and didn't go to dental school and just really good at using that little sharp thing without cutting me uh, that gets the tartar off my teeth. But I understand there's some risk of other things and complications that when my dentist comes in and says and looks at my teeth um, after my cleaning, there, there's some value to that. I just wish I could choose when that value was accrued and when I paid for it, um, anyway, if I paid for it. But um, but to go back to the question of of just um, of quality and, and knowledge, it, it's also the case that if this is true, if it's true that uh, the schools that spring up around these professions have this networking effect, which seems plausible, 
it does raise the question of why there aren't private alternatives. And of course, there must be some. There are private uh, educational institutions that train people for skill for skills in the workforce. They're not designed to be a liberal arts education. They're just designed to teach you how to do uh, very practical trades. And they're not related to licensing, I assume. They're just helping people get the skills, and they, they're certified privately. You can – some of them are worth nothing, and some of them are worth a lot. I assume some of them teach you something that's very valuable, and some don't. Have you looked at those at all? No, um, and unfortunately, uh, we just don't have good data on where people who are licensed are getting their education Um it becomes very difficult to examine, say, the effect of traits of licensing laws and what their outcome is. So, for instance, does a licensing law in one state that requires 40 hours of education differ in terms of how restrictive they are from a licensing law in another state that requires 80 hours? And it becomes difficult in large part because uh, there's not a lot of variation on these things. So there are model licensing schemes that go from state that, that get adopted from state to state that are kind of this is a general licensing scheme. If you're going to license cosmetologists or auctioneers, here's kind of the general structure for it. And then also, I mean, there's just kind of a general level of education needed to become a cosmetologist. Cosmetologists require more than a weekend class and less than a four year degree. It just it just is the nature of the occupation. Yeah, but I'm just thinking that you know, just obviously there are people who learn how to cut hair from their friends. Uh, that may mean they're only good at cutting certain kinds of hair. Uh, there are other people who could go to barber school or a salon school or cosmetology school that are purely private schools that are not – nothing in an unlicensed state. And those schools proliferate in the question, I assume, in most occupations. It's, you know, it's certainly true. I can go put – you know, put a, in an unlicensed state, I can say I'm a barber and – I can be really uh, untrained, but it's also true that if, as you point out, if I don't know how to get connected to be a barber, there are private opportunities outside of the licensing network that would allow me to get those skills. It's not obvious why a, a government-imposed school requirement, which does create those schools, obviously, would be better than a world where they were created on their own, and if they don't exist, maybe don't need to. That's the well, That's what I'm speculating. Well, I think that's an interesting question, but I mean, let's let's back up a step and licenses are about more than quality. So I get I get pushed on licensing for a bunch of different occupations all the time. Uh, and while I don't know everything there is to know about any occupation, of course, uh, some of these uh, occupations kind of get picked on. Um, and so, for instance, I get pushed back on like, why do florists yeah. or massage therapists or auctioneers need, or locksmiths need, need, tour guides. guides. Yeah. I mean, and I would say first off that massage therapists, uh, I met a woman on the massage therapy board in Tennessee, uh, and her whole job was human trafficking. That's what they do on the massage therapy board is they prevent human trafficking, right? There's a huge prostitution relationship between massage therapy and that's what they do. Florists are licensed in large part, because they buy huge quantities of fertilizer and the federal government doesn't allow you to buy and sell fertilizer because fertilizer is used to make bombs. Locksmiths carry burglary tools, tools that it's illegal to carry around unless you're a, you have permission from the state to carry tools that can be used to break and enter. I mean, auctioneers are not just people who talk fast when they sell stuff. Auctioneers are people who, uh, 
have a real fiduciary duty to their clients and frequently negotiate deals across state lines. I mean, so I'm in, I'm in the ivory tower. I'm in academia. I, I don't leave my office a lot. I'm sort of a hermit in the classic <laughs> ivory tower sense. But what I know is that occupations are way more complicated and do and have way more interaction in the labor market than we tend to think of, right? A florist doesn't just arrange flowers to be pretty. It's a more complicated occupation than that. And I think when we make the assumption that uh, people in this occupation are wanting a license solely out of greed, we fail to look at the kind of complexity that occupations have. I mean, you're a supply and demand guy, right? Yep. You you surely don't think that there's a lot of room in in the labor market for people who solely make flowers pretty. Like it has to be more complicated than that. And there have to be more inter-occupational and industry interactions than that. Well, I, I don't know. I, it's an interesting question. So in my uh, local grocery store, there's a florist and there's a person behind the counter who – I assume I sometimes see her actually doing arranging and actually putting together bouquets. I don't know what whether she has arranged every single bouquet that's in the or, or a fellow worker has arranged every bouquet that's in the refrigerated section of that florist part of the grocery. But I would argue that they don't have anything to do with fertilizer, don't need to. And if I'm, I wonder if they need a license. In, in uh, I did that jump in high school, and you don't. Okay. I was employed by the grocery store. Yeah. Like I was a grocery store employee. Maybe yeah. they changed it since then. But, um, Maybe. I don't, it has been a while. <laughs> it's been a depressing amount of time since then. Um, yeah, I, I, I can relate to that. Uh, but but my, my point is, is that I don't um, – I, 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 it's a great point about the, the literal quality or knowledge of the skills and the only role license pl- licensing plays. And of course, there's a lot of uh, safety regulation where you, you or I might, you and I might disagree about the ability of a of a decentralized solution to reduce the risk of of uh, harm. But certainly, I would argue there's a difference between understanding the dangers of a particular. Uh, occupation to human health versus uh, how well you say cut the hair. The problem I have usually with these kind of distinctions, though, is that the regulations and licensing requirements go way beyond the just the simplest health and safety piece of it. So it, it does appear to have, in many cases, an, ex, an ex, it appears to have an exclusionary role. And, and what I think is interesting about your claim, and I want you to talk about Let's go back to to your point about um, about women and minorities. Is that it, it potentially, even though it could have an exclusionary role, it, it does have an offsetting and potentially more than offsetting effect in in giving people access. So, what's the argument? Why why were you uh, invoking women's women and minorities? And is that something that explicitly comes out of the work with respect to certain licensing requirements? Yeah, so one of the reasons I bring them up is because that's where we see some of the most dramatic occupational entry after licensing. We see largest increases in uh, an occupation amongst people who have traditionally been excluded from that occupation. So, for instance, we see one of the biggest increases in nursing when licensing occurs amongst male nurses. And we see some of the biggest increases in construction jobs when they become licensed amongst women. 
Um, and so that, that kind of what led to the development of the theory is that it's not just an increase in the number of hours being supplied uh, in the labor force in a state. It's that it's a specific group of people who start offering services under those occupations. And those are the people who've typically been excluded from offering uh, or had less common fit in that occupation in the past. So one of the challenges, of course, this kind of work is that there's always other things changing. In those two examples, male nurses, female construction workers, there's lots of other things going on besides licensing changes that have, that would have made those things happen already. You're, you're, you have to make the claim that that the the effects are even larger. Yes. So one of the one of the things, or, or excuse me, or better, does, or better, that in states that didn't have it, that trend didn't grow as fast. Yes. So so one of the things that happens is a licensing law occurs in a state at a particular time and doesn't necessarily occur in all other states at that time. And so if if, I mean, there's obviously been this trend towards male nurses for a while uh, and we can look at states where the license didn't change in that year and say, what was the trend in male nurses in those other states in that year? And how does the licensed state compare to those unlicensed states? Do you have any feel for the magnitude of that in terms of, say, men in occupations typically thought of as female or vice versa? Uh, I don't have any understanding of the magnitude of that because it's kind of a rare occurrence. Um, Now, women entering an occupation, about 2%, um, which, you know, increase. So if an occupation is 20% female after the license within about, I think it's like five years, it'll become about 22% female. Okay. So two percentage points. So that's actually a pretty big increase. That's 10%. Yeah. Um, Well, if that's what the uh, baseline for the occupation was. Yeah. In that case. Um, So what's the, walk me through that argument. I think it's really interesting. And in, in particular, you're, you're suggesting, well, there's two ways. I can think of at least two ways to, that that might happen, that increase for people who are normally excluded. I'd like you to expand on it. Um, well, I the the kind of I break it down into sort of three things that licensing does. Licensing creates secondary institutions, so things like schools and uh, professional associations and groups and sectors and the like. Uh, which have the effect of drawing people together and creating network ties and spreading information. Um, Licensing also uh, creates a state endorsement that helps with credibility. Uh, And I hear this occasionally when I talk to, say, uh, interior designers who deal a lot with engineers and architects and people in construction. They deal largely with uh, male occupations and They talk about when they've become licensed, the way that that helps them be seen as a credible and real occupation, an occupation that actually has knowledge and skill. Uh, And so that that indicia of quality from the state also bestows some credibility and legitimacy on people in the occupation. And then lastly, um, I as a sociologist, of course, am never going to make the claim that standardized testing is completely unbiased and contains no... Uh, no structural effects to it, but in general, standardized tests are more colorblind than personal judgments are. So when you break these kind of 
three factors out, the secondary institutions, the indicia of legitimacy and uh, the kind of colorblindness that comes with licensing. I think those three effects can have the outcome of pulling people into an occupation. Now, I think it's important to note when I say that, I don't mean that the license stops being exclusionary because there are obviously people who want in the occupation who can't, either because uh, they don't have the skills or can't offer the, the demonstration of quality or alternately because they don't have the resources. They can't pay for the education, right? So licensing continues to be exclusionary, but it also has this kind of uh, pull effect. While it's pushing, it's also pulling. And what a license will do in the net, what its overall outcome will be, will depend on a balance of that push-pull effect and what was happening in the occupation in the unregulated environment, what informal barriers existed prior to the enactment of formal barriers. Yeah, that's what interests me, and I think the the last part in particular, because yeah, you know, there obviously there are informal barriers. There's information; it's just not free, so people have to acquire it about what potential jobs there are and how you might get those jobs. You still have that issue after you get the certification. You still have to find uh, the opportunity, and you're making the point, which I think is is certainly true that that there are going to be different ways that that's going to happen now. And some of them might be better than the informal ways that were before. Um, I guess the, it, it is ultimately an empirical question and the, the, um, the finding that it, that it's two percentage points is uh, in, in that particular case or other examples are, it, it's really, it's surprising to me because I mean, I would have overwhelmingly thought that the cost uh, barrier would outweigh most of those other uh, most of those other effects, and I assume most economists that you talk to feel the same way. So, why don't you talk about what kind of reaction your works received from from economists? Um. Well, uh, you can be honest. We're just we're friends here. It's it's. I think it's every scientist's dream to to be surrounded by people who don't listen to them. <laughs> um. I mean. I, I think it's important to note that we frequently cast this in terms of a for and against, right? Like there's yep. people for licensing and there's people against licensing. Uh, and I, I think mo- the, the main point of my work is that it's actually just more nuanced than that. Licenses are hugely diverse and they cover a broad swath of the labor force and the labor force is very diverse. Uh, occupations are different and they do a broad range of tasks and require a broad range of skills. And so we just, we can't know what a license does until we look at it. Uh, It wasn't something that I thought would be a controversial statement, but it's turned out to be a bit. Yeah, I think Uh, so. (laughs) (laughs) So. uh, Well, the reason, the reason I, that I think it's controversial, a lot of reasons it'd be controversial. Nobody likes to be told that their work's, their life's work is maybe wrong. And there are a lot of economists who've worked in this area who come up with a more negative and less nuanced uh, set of findings. But but if you'd asked me before I'd read your work, uh, what do I think of of licensing? I'd always argue that the increase in licensing, particularly at the level of low-skilled occupations where barriers to entry were relatively small, has been a big problem for people with, say, only a high school education or less than a high school education – who previously could go and get apprenticed or train or work at a low wage, learning the skills and not have to worry about these formal expensive barriers. And so for me, licensing is a very bad 
uh, programming on average, especially in this rise in blue collar work that you've been mentioning, that punishes poor people. And so I, I'm open. I'd love to know I'm wrong. That would be great. Um, so I, if I were as a sociologist, I'm not. But as a, if I were a sociologist, I'd want to really focus on those lowest skilled people in the lowest people with the least skills who still go into licensed professions and see if they're better off. It's hard for me to understand that they would be applauding licensing because then they're going to be able to get people's attention better. It just seems it seems unlikely, but it doesn't mean it's false. So uh, that's what I'd want to focus on. Well, I mean, I think it's important to not paint licensing as this completely rosy solution to an occupation's problems. Um, so we do we do see an increase in pe- women and people of color in the occupation in some occupations following licensing. But if you look at the wage distribution of those license those occupations, what you also see is that they tend to cluster women at the bottom of the wage distribution. In other words, we're bringing women into those occupations, but we're not paying them enough. They end up lower paid than they would in an unlicensed environment. And that's one of the reasons why there's no net benefit, right, is no net wage premium to licensing is if you bring a bunch of people in, but you don't pay them well, the average wage doesn't increase. It can actually go down. And so licensing is more than just a barrier to entry. Licensing completely restructures an occupation. It changes a whole bunch of things about the occupation. Let's take, for example, therapists. Right. So in an unlicensed environment, therapists offer therapy. It's what they do. Um, they're not like biologists, but they offer a whole variety of therapies. In a licensed environment, it's really common for therapists to fall into a couple of camps. So, for instance, you might get licensed as a family counselor, in which case you do family, marriage, divorce, etc. Or you might get licensed as a juvenile counselor, in which case you work in schools. Or you might get licensed as a substance abuse counselor, in which case you work in the area of addiction and kind of a more medical setting, right? Those, the, and you, you tend to then focus in one. And of course, those three different strata have different wages attached to those positions. And so the result of licensing is it internally stratifies an occupation. It creates groups within an occupation and those groups then become less equal. So licensing is, we think of it as a pass key that occurs only at the time of entry and the effects stop there. But in reality, licensing changes everything about the way the occupation operates from who's paid, who's in it to how they're paid, how much they're paid, the work they do, what tasks they'll perform, what skills they need and how they interact with a whole bunch of other occupations in the labor force. Licensing is this really complicated phenomenon. And, and I think one of the things I'd love to see us do is expand our our examination and say, what are the broad consequences to licensing, not just in the occupation, but in occupations around it and for a state? I want to go back to the therapy example. So to be a family therapist, put that shingle up. You need a different set of, in certain states, a different set of requirements than to be a, um, fam- uh, something else. Well, we're most another example. We're a, a juvenile di- counselor, a juvenile counselor, and they're going to pay different amounts. But one of the reasons they're going to pay different amounts is the licensing restrictions, because those are going to affect potentially the flow of people in and into the profession. There is it could be some exclusion, but but the other is just that they're different skills, presumably. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they have the word therapist in them doesn't mean that they should pay the same or will pay the same or. Um, 
it, I, I'm just reacting. It fascinates me that it was in, I think, the first couple minutes of our conversation. You said, as a sociologist, of, quote, of course, you're interested in inequality. Um, I'm interested in inequality, too, but I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing, which might make me unusual even among economists. But uh, do you see equality as a goal in, in say, therapy professions, even if they're different types of populations and that people are working with? Well, uh, I'm going to refrain from making value judgments just because I don't, I think that's a complicated and, and nuanced question. I, but when you see differences created by a licensing scheme, when you see, for example, women clustered at the bottom of a wage distribution because the occupation's licensed, I think you then have to ask, what is the source of that inequality? Um, I'm perpetually kind of, interested in this idea that uh, inequality created by a marketplace has a positive value and inequality created by, uh, say, a legislative or regulatory process has a negative value affiliated with it. it I it's, it's an interesting philosophical take on life that I've never quite understood. Well, I wouldn't – let me try to react to that. I don't – I'm not sure how to react to it exactly. Um, I, I would never argue that, that – um, that every market outcome is, quote, beneficial or good. I think people have I'll, – I'll speak for more interventionist economists than myself, but I think their argument would be that we're probably better at dealing with state-imposed changes that lead to inequality than we are dealing with those that emerge from a more uh, organic process like the market. Now, of course, we can mess with the market. <laughs> we do all the time. So we can we can play with we can adjust and affect those market outcomes, of course, through licensing, through lots of other things as well. So, um, and I do think there's a certain um, um, naivete is not the right word. I don't know dogmatic um, claim made by some people in my camp that well, if, if it's if that's what the market produces, then it's natural. And I don't think that's necessarily and, and quote, therefore good. I don't think that necessarily follows any more than I do that that things that people do in their own self interest must be moral. That's not true, uh, contrary to what I think some people get confused about in thinking about that. I just think it's as an economist, when you tell me that that women cluster at the bottom of an occupation because of licensing, my my next question is what were their alternatives? And I would I would argue if your work is correct and this is creating more opportunities for them that they weren't – that didn't have available, that's probably an improvement. It's better than nothing. Uh, but if it's merely um, – but maybe it's – we're not seeing the women who are excluded. That would be my worry and who can't even get this occupation that pays less, that pays little. They're doing something that pays even less somewhere else. And that's always been the same issue with unions, right? Unions are extolled as helping wor protect workers. They typically did it through reducing the supply of and access to those jobs, and met, which meant that the workers that you didn't see who were non-unionized were going into the non-unionized sectors and pushing down wages there. And that's, again, an empirical question of how you feel about the magnitudes. But it's, it's always – that's the next question you'd want to ask. Mm -hmm. No, I think there's, I think there's kind of big – big streams of research to come out of this. Uh, I've started on a project to look at where licensing pops up and why. And then I think we have to ask what licensing does after entry, how it restructures an occupation broadly. And then I think it's worth asking, 
what uh, licensing does to a state economy. So, for instance, does it rigidify a state economy and make it less able to bounce back from, say, periods of recession or not? And, Great question. I mean, these, these are these are broad, giant research questions that it might very well take as social scientists the next 20 years to argue about. Well, the other thing, I, I, I want to come back to this example you gave earlier about these informal networks. I, I assume sociologists study those things. It's not obvious how you study them, how one should study them. As you say, there's not good data on it, but a case study approach to how people find their jobs um, is would be really interesting and in how they connect to how they network. I, I assume sociologists look at some of that. Economists don't, as far as I know, look at it at all. But it seems to me that's an incredibly interesting – I'm interested in civil society. I'm interested in the institutions that arise voluntarily and, and – from the bottom up that help people make those connections and mm-hmm. they're out there. I just don't know how successful they are, how well they work and whether they work vastly better or vastly worse than effectively state imposed ones or that go around the response to a licensing requirement. That That's what fascinates me about your point about the, um, those informal barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else are you interested in? Are you going to, is this your, um, do you see this as your, uh, niche for a while um and if it is are you going to try to drill down into certain occupations or maybe certain gender differences well i'm interested in economic segregation so i also do work on indian tribes uh so for those who aren't familiar with how indian tribes function uh uh, when an indian tribe has a reservation uh that reservation uh the economic activities on that reservation are controlled by the tribe uh so they get to make complete decisions on what businesses operate there. Uh, so for instance, uh, obviously the most extolled upon case study is casinos. We talk about, oh, is it fair that an Indian tribe gets to have a casino and Donald Trump didn't get to have a casino? Um, but it, it's another form yes, of economic. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's another an easy form one. of economic. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's another form of economic monopoly, right? Uh, where the tribe gets to control activities. Uh, but the, the flip side of that is they're also uh, isolated from the greater labor market, right? There's a distance there that's created because tribes are a government, uh, like a state government, only a uh, government within a government. And so uh, I'm, I'm interested in these processes that are these kind of economic barriers that throw up between groups and what that does to how the groups function and how groups interrelate. No, I think it's a, and I said yes. I, mean, I know the answer to that question. I just think it's extraordinarily depressing how how badly um, the U.S. government's treated Native Americans for ever. I was, you know, it's, I think most people now feel like, yeah, we didn't do a good job with them when they were uh, with war. But it, the post-war reservation system is has so many grotesqueries around it. And we talked about some of those in a past Econ Talk episode, and I'd, I'd love to hear uh, more about that. Are you going to be – what's the focus of that going to be? Just is it is it general now or, you, or – I know you're working on a book, right? Yeah. So the first thing we have to ask is uh, how are Indians doing? Uh, it's been more than a generation since kind of the biggest – a broad-scale examination of American Indian welfare. Uh, and the answer is Indians contribute continue to exhibit uh, inequality structures similar to African Americans. So their poverty rate continues to be – above 20%, unemployment continues to be high, uh, 
all of this kind of on the backdrop of increased educational access. So uh, degree attainment by American Indians has increased drastically. Uh, and so the, the first aspect of that is just to ask, how are they doing? Uh, how, what kind of jobs exist on a reservation? What kind of wages can be offered on a reservation? Uh, where is Indian poverty and what are the causes of those things? And then the second big aspect to that is when Indian tribes do various business activities, when they, when they start a casino, when they found an energy project, when they engage in a private-public partnership of any sort, uh, what is the net effect on the reservation of those activities? And so that's where the work will go. Uh, hopefully in the next three to five years, we'll know some answers to those things. But you have some surprising results already, I think, on the casino front. Is that correct? Yeah. So there, there's some general evidence that uh, casinos are not increasing wages on a reservation. They do, in the first couple of years, in, they create jobs. Uh, they decrease the unemployment rate on a reservation, but they uh, those jobs tend to be low-wage jobs. Um, and then the net effect is uh, no no increase in livable wages and no decrease in poverty, but a drastic increase in inequality, which suggests kind of, again, this rent capture idea that profits from casinos are going into the hands of a few. Um, now, who that, few is, <laughs> who, that, who that few is depends on the structure of the casino on the reservation, right? So sure. Indian tribes can't always get financing to build a reservation. So sometimes they go the with casino. a private partnership. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, build a casino. And sometimes they they go with a uh, private partnership that results in funneling a lot of profits to a company that has resorts. That I won't name names, but as as resorts all over the United States that you'd recognize as kind of a resort company. And when those partnerships occur, that means profits are being bled out of the reservation. Um, so it, it depends a lot on the, the kind of financing for a casino and how the casino develops and what kind of arrangements the tribe has, which depends a lot on the kind of power a tribe had when they were negotiating contracts originally. Well, I look forward to talking to you in three to five years. Um, <laughs> My guest today has been Beth Redbird. Uh, Beth, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.